cannot say enough about how blessed I was by both by what Andrew put together and by Tamise and the team this morning. Uh, I almost don't even need to say anything. I'm going to, but I almost don't even need to because that was just powerful testimony from all of you. And just man, it's not good to make me cry before I get up here. Usually we got to give me a little time to get warmed up. Good morning. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma. Pray with me if you will this morning. Lord Jesus, we love you. We recognize our need for you. Lord, it has been stormy and you have brought us safe through. Be with us this morning. Open our ears to hear what you have to say to us. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. While I set this up, be flipping to Acts 27. Acts chapter 27. We are going to do some hard work this morning in the text. I got a long text but I got a really short message to deliver. This text is going to speak for itself, and we're going to let it as we work together. We have been preaching through the book of Acts, looking at the work that the Holy Spirit has done in the world to announce the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ coming. And he has worked his mighty power through the apostles, through the church, through Paul, who has gone out into all the world. And as Tony set us up last week, Paul came to Jerusalem knowing he was going to be put into chains. He got into Jerusalem, and there was a big brouhaha, and he was accused of all sorts of things which he wasn't guilty of. They put him on trial, and on trial, his testimony for Jesus was the centerpiece of what he was accused of. And for several years, he sits in chains, you know, while officials, him and haul around. And finally, he says, look, I'm done with all this. I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, Paul had the right to appeal to Caesar. And as soon as he says that, they're like, well, we could have just let you go because, you know, you're not really guilty of anything. Right, like after years of making him sit around, they're finally like, okay, fine, to Caesar you go. And they're going to put Paul on a boat at the start of Acts chapter 27. And we're going to follow this morning what that journey was like. And we're going to pull a few things out of this passage this morning as we read through it together. But the big idea is really very simple. God saved Paul. He'll save you too. That's it. We've already heard that testimony this morning, both through our words of assurance And through the songs this morning. So what we read in the scripture isn't going to be any different than what we have already heard. What we've already said we agree with. God will save us through the storms. He saved Paul. He will save us too. So open, if you will, to Acts chapter 27. I'm going to put in a plug this morning. Keep in mind, we are all about learning to feed ourselves from the word of God. What we do here on Sunday is part of that, right? The teaching that you get from the pastors on Sunday when we preach from the Word, that's part of that. But that is not sufficient. If you think you can survive off of one sermon a week, you're going to be spiritually weak. You're going to be malnourished. You need to be reading the Word, studying these things on your own. And this particular passage is a good example of uh, why sometimes really good tools can help us, right? A mentor of mine used to say, the word of God is like a gold mine. And there's gold laying around everywhere. There's gold up on the surface, and then there's gold deep down in the mine. 
This passage is a good illustration of that. Because the gold on the surface of this passage is really good. Like, literally any of you could read this passage and be like, oh, I think I get the point. At the same time, there are some depths, there's some nuances, there's some historical facts and details that kind of bring out a little more the context, give you a little bit better feel for the spirit. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. One of the best tools, this tool is so good that, to be perfectly honest, like this is better tool than what the greatest preachers and theologians had for about 1,900 years of church history, uh, the ESV Study Bible. If you ever want to know how did the ESV get so popular as a version, it's pretty much this study Bible super good. Uh, it's really accessible. It's got all kinds of footnotes and maps and stuff. And you'll see as we go through it this morning, this is the kind of passage where if you have a really good study tool with you, and this study Bible, it's all right there. You can just read the passage. There's little footnotes. There's big, colorful maps. It does a really good job of helping you understand that context. So some of what I'm going to bring this morning are going to be things, obviously, that I research that, you know, in my own spiritual and theological education I've come up with. But honestly, none of it is really that much better or more robust than what you could read for yourself with a good study Bible. So I want to recommend the ESV study Bible because I want you all to be feeding yourselves from the Word regularly. Listen to what the Spirit has for you. So again, let's dive into Acts chapter 27. We're going to go through Acts 27 through 28:15. We're going to go through this verse by verse. We're going to read all of it, and we're going to really get a feel for what's going on. And we'll stop a few places along the way, and then at the end I'm going to sum up. But again, keep in mind our big idea. God saved Paul. He'll save you too. Acts 27 verse 1, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... So right now, the we there, Luke is writing, right? Luke is the author of both the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And at various points in Acts, Luke writes in the first person because he's physically present. Keep that in mind. The man writing this chapter was there. So all the crazy stuff that's about to go down, we are reading a first-person narrative account, right? This is history. This is like, I saw all of this stuff happen, and I think... You all will see why that matters here in a minute. So keep in mind, the we here is Luke and the people traveling with Luke and Paul. All right. So when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramantium, which was, a, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. All right, so Paul is now a prisoner, but keep in mind, he is a prisoner who's also a Roman citizen. And also everybody kind of knows he's innocent, so he's actually going to appeal to Caesar. And if he goes to Caesar and he gets to see the king, and Caesar's like, ah, listen, I don't even know why you guys have brought this case to me. This is idiotic. You should have treated this guy better along the way. It will go badly for everybody else along the way. So now everybody's kind of being kind to Paul, right? He's a prisoner, absolutely still a prisoner, still accused. It's not innocent until proven guilty. It's guilty until proven innocent. So Paul's still a prisoner, but everybody's kind of cool and everybody knows what's up, right? So they sail a little bit away from Jerusalem. And uh, along that way, Paul actually has the freedom to go and visit people. They stop in port, you know, they're getting ready to change ships. Paul actually has some freedom. And he's going out and he's visiting people. And it's an important thing, I just always like to note this, that persecution 
for Christ isn't the same thing as persecution just for being a jerk. We can be persecuted and be winsome and be people that people like all at the same time. A lot of what goes on in the modern day, people whine about being persecuted for their faith, and they're really just being persecuted for being jerks. If you are cruel to people, if you're selfish, if you're up in everybody's business and people don't like that, that's not for Jesus. That's just because you're mean. And what Paul's showing here is even though he's legitimately being persecuted in chains for the gospel, people still like him. (laughs) They still like him. Paul was still somebody that everybody liked. His captors, the people literally imprisoning him were like, yeah, you're in prison, but gosh, Paul, you're, you're a good guy. Keep that in mind. That is just a free life hack, right? Persecution for Jesus is one thing. Persecution for being a jerk is a whole other problem. Verse 4, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. So basically what Luke is describing is that because of the way the winds are going to be sailing under the lee means he's trying to, they're trying to stay really close to the shore. This whole voyage is going to be against the headwinds that are coming. This is a really complicated, there's a lot of like first century maritime navigational stuff in this chapter. And we'll talk about why that matters in a minute. But Luke's just giving you some context. He's also very certain that everybody just understands what sailing in the Mediterranean's like. So a lot of these things, he's like, you know, like sailing in the Mediterranean. And you're all like, what? This is what a lot is going on in this chapter. He says, we sailed under the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Then the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Basically, they got on a big Egyptian grain ship, right? They've been traveling on a little boat up to a certain point. Now they're getting ready to head east or to head west and make way for Rome, and they get on a much bigger boat. This was a big boat, and it would have been transporting grain, but also these prisoners, right? In those days, those big ships, they were kind of privately owned, but the government still had a lot to say in them. So they were carrying around Roman soldiers, but also grain that was going to head to Rome. All right, Uh, verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinidius. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasea. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was over, in those days you didn't sail in winter, right? You didn't sail the Mediterranean Sea in winter. It was super dangerous. So when he says the, the feast is now passed, he's saying we're so late in the year now, it's getting really complicated and dangerous to make this journey. This is no longer just the routine journey that they would make all the time. Things are going to get rough. Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive the voyage will be one with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. So Paul right now, this is not like an angel from God or wisdom from on high. Paul is just being smart. He's like, "Uh, guys, it's winter. Nobody makes this voyage. This is dangerous. Now, the guy who owns the boat, He's under pressure because if they can get that boat to Rome faster, they get a bunch of big bonuses. None of this is in the text. This is this historical detail that I'm talking about that sometimes we can pull out when we dig deeper down into that mine. So the owner of the ship's thinking one thing. He's thinking money. 
I got to get to Rome as fast as I can. I get a big bonus. And Paul's like, uh, it's winter. <laughs> we should stay here. This is not Paul's first rodeo. This is not Luke's first rodeo. These guys have been traveling around the world for an entire book. Verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship to what Paul said, which I guess makes sense, right? The centurion uh, is going to listen to the guy who owns the boat and the pilot more than his prisoner. It says, because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So basically, they want to go 34 more miles. That's it. Like, Crete is this island in the Mediterranean, and it's got these little ports all along the southern edge of it. And depending on where you wind up, the winter will either, like, wreck your boat because the winds are so bad, or your boat will be pretty much safe. But also, you're just hanging out in this town, just doing nothing, waiting for the weather to change. So they're like, hey, there's a much better place to hang out for the winter. It's only 34 miles away. Like, they could probably make this in a few hours. This tells you, like, kind of how bad the weather's getting and how dicey this whole thing is. And they basically roll the dice. And they're like, eh, Paul, it'll be fine. We've only got to go five or six more hours down the coast, and, and the whole winter will be much better. And, and this is what Luke's setting up when he talks about the directions, we'll be able to get out and get to Rome faster, right? The winter will be shorter and better if we can just make it another five or six more hours. This is a lot like uh, that faithful moment when as a, a parent, you're on a cross-country road trip with a kid and they say, I got to use the bathroom. And you're like, I think we can make it. This is really the same thing. Oh, Paul, I think we can make it. There's another, there's a there's a, there's a McDonald's about 25 miles. I know we just passed a rest stop, but I think we can make it. It is a bad idea. <laughs> you can't make it. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently. I love this, right? Keep in mind, first person account. You can't read this and not find yourself right there, right? This is not... Um, a mythology. This is not an imagining. This is a first-person narrative of what happened. Now when the wind blew gently, the south wind blew gently. Luke's like telling them what directions the wind came from. Again, because everybody would have known what these things meant. A wind from the south, hey, the, the weather's turned. It looks like we're going to get weather. We only need to make it six hours. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter, nothing called the nor'easter is ever good, called the nor'easter, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island named Claudia. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So there was like a like a smaller boat tied to the bigger boat that they would use to go to shore, right? They'd leave the bigger boat out in the, out in the water, and they'd take a small boat to shore. So that boat's getting tossed around, banged around, so they're securing it. Uh, after hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. The ship is going to literally come apart. So they're like tying big ropes, looping them around underneath, and they're trying to hold this boat together because the wind is blowing so hard. The whole thing is threatening to come apart at the seams. 
Then fearing they would run aground on the, on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began in the next day to jettison the cargo. Remember what we said. What was the whole purpose for trying to get out of this port on time? Money. Guess what they are no longer going to have? Money. They're no longer going to have any money. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They are now hundreds of miles out to sea, and it is just blowing. They thought they'd be there that afternoon. They thought it was 34 miles, we can make it. And the whole time, you know, they're sailing under lead. You can see the shore, right? They're right there with the shore. So the whole time, imagine, you're there and you can see, see the shore, still see the shore, still see the shore. Now all of a sudden this tempest blows out and now you are way out in the middle of the ocean. There is, like you pass a small, they pass a small island at one point and then the next thing you know, they are just nowhere. They are literally in the middle of nowhere and all hope of being saved was lost. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me when we set sail from Crete and not incurred this injury and loss. Now, keep in mind, this sounds a little bit like I told you show, like y'all should have listened to me the first time. It's not quite what he's doing. What he's, what he's, because remember, the difference between being a jerk and being persecuted, Paul is really saying, Hey, guys, like, I really do know what I'm talking about. Like, I don't think this is like finger pointing. I think he's like saying, hey, trust me. I've been right before. Trust me. Trust me. If we had, if, if we had done this the first time, I'm not just some, some rube from nowhere. I know about ships. I know about the weather. I know about these things. We didn't have to, to do this. But now I'm saying, I urge you, verse 22, to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. These men are terrified. They are terrified. They are scared for their life. They think they've completely lost. They put all their hope in trying to get this bonus. And now it's gone and they're sure they're going to die. And Paul says, don't worry. God is putting me through a storm, but he has told me that he will not only save me, he's going to save everybody with me. So take heart. Take heart. Don't be afraid. Verse 27. When the 14th night had come to Two weeks, 14 days. They are just in the storm, in the darkness, no hope of seeing land. They've lost everything. They don't know how they're going to make it out alive. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and saw 15 fathoms. It's getting less deep, right? The water, taking a sounding means they're trying to figure out how deep the water is. So the water is getting more shallow. And fearing they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors to the stern and prayed for day to come. Have you ever been there? 
Have you ever been so deep in the storm, so deep in the ocean, that all you did was pray for day to come? That's where these men were. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out the anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. They were ready to abandon ship. First hope. First hope. Listen, they are still way out there. They're not close to the land yet. It's getting a little bit more shallow. At the first sight of maybe there's a way out of this, folks are ready to jump ship. They are ready to abandon ship. And Paul's like, no, you got to stay together. you got to hang together. you got to stay on this boat. Unless everybody stays, we can't, we can't make it. It says, then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. In other words, it was gone. Like Everybody's like, all right, there's no, there's no escape plan. There's no lifeboat that's going to save five of us and the other rest of you all are going to drown. We're in this together. Do or die, sink or swim until the end. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is going to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were encouraged and ate some food themselves. I've mentioned this probably, I don't know, a hundred times through the years. In a crisis, people need to eat. There's a reason why we bring casseroles to funerals, you know, why we show up with meal trains for people who've just had a baby. There's reasons why when big things happen, we show up with food. It's because when you are, feel like your strength's going to give up, you need to eat something. I think it's beautiful. We'll talk, we'll do communion here in a little bit, but here it is. Paul just breaks the bread and he prays. And he's like, here, eat some, boys. It's going to be okay. We're going to make it through in the morning. Verse 37 of chapter 27. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing the wheat into the sea. There's nothing left now. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on it, which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they didn't have any idea where they were. It says they didn't recognize the land. These guys had been all over that area. They thought they knew pretty much every port, every island, every place they could be. They literally look out there and like, well, I don't know where that is, but that's where we are. That is a whole mood. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. This is it. They hit the gas. Right? They've hit the gas, the nautical gas. So they put the mast up, and now they are going full steam ahead. Like, we just, we're going to hit that land. No matter what, we're just going to hit it. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. It just keeps getting worse, right? They finally see the land. Now they hit this reef. Now the boat is like sinking, right? Like, ah, we're, we're this close. No, now it's all, it's all come apart. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So it's pounding the boat so hard, the boat is now just breaking apart out from underneath them. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should escape. If you remember back a few chapters, we, we did the, the Philippian jailer, right, where Paul and Silas are singing praise songs in the middle of the night. The jail doors fling open. And what was the jailer going to do because the jail doors flung open? He was going to kill himself. Why was he going to kill himself? Because he was sure all the prisoners were going to run off. 
what happened to you if you were a Roman citizen, a Roman soldier, and your prisoners ran off? Bad stuff. Real bad stuff. Stuff so bad that killing yourself seemed like a really good option at that point. So these soldiers are like, look, the ship's going to break up. We're going to lose control of all these prisoners we have because it wasn't just Paul. There were other people with them. And so they're just going to kill them all. And that way they'll be able to tell their superiors, hey, none of the prisoners escaped. We killed them. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept from carrying out their plan. He ordered that those who could swim jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was, all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. Malta is 450 miles away from where they were. They were just blown through the whole Mediterranean Sea, just through the whole sea, blown almost all the way to Rome, believe it or not. And they were nowhere near where they thought they were going to be. So they land. It says, The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they, kill, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bunch of sticks and put them in a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened him on his hand. Again, how much worse could it get at this point, right? He's already in prison, already been through a shipwreck. Now he makes it on shore, and now he gets a snake bite. Unless there's a viper, like a serious, like he should be dead in a few hour kind of snake bite, right? Like this is, this is a bad deal. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, so it's not like just like it nipped him. It's literally the snake is clamped onto Paul's hand. They said, no doubt this guy's a murderer. <laughs> Though he had escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Which is completely the way people treat us when things go from bad to worse. They are, people are, we, already, we always suspect that it's got to be because of something somebody did that a bad thing is happening. And here they are piling on him. Wow, he must be really bad because now it just keeps getting worse. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and thought he was a god. So, like, this is literally, like, this, if this isn't, like, this is straight up social media at this point, right? Like, everybody's, like, either, like, you're a god or you're a murderer and there's no in-between. Right? Everybody is either monster or savior. And it's been that way for a really long time. This stuff isn't new. Verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were the lands belonging to the chief were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. When Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases and came out were also cured. They honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting it in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Rigium. And after one day, a south wind sprung up, and on the second day, we came to Putoli. There we found four brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers were there. And when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul 
thanked God and took courage. What are we going to do with this story? There's a real simple application. God save Paul, he will save you, right? You don't need me to stand up here and tell you what a story about enduring a horrible shipwreck and a snake attack in prison and enduring all of that and coming safely home means. I think that's pretty self-evident to most of us. We can relate to pieces of this. But I want to take a couple things specifically out of it. Number one, the detail in what we're studying this morning. We take comfort from reality, not from mythology. This is not myth. This is a historical record. You heard the detail, right? You heard the level of specificity and detail. This is an eyewitness account. We don't metaphorically take comfort from the fact that God, and by God I mean the universe, is really looking out for us and it will all work out. And we can just like sort of be happy in our hearts because we think good thoughts. That is not what this text demands of us. This text says that there is a real God in heaven who saved a real name, man named Paul and 276 other people, by the way, from a real storm, from a real snake. That there is real power here, that this is history and not mythology. There are people, look, stories are beautiful, guys. Stories are beautiful. I love stories. I love fiction. I love mythology. Stories are beautiful. They inspire us. They instruct us. They encourage us. They entertain us. They illuminate us. They convict us. They are not the same thing as fact. This is not a book of nice stories. It does not present itself as a book of nice stories. It presents itself as fact that has to be dealt with. So when I say, God saved Paul, he can save you too, that is not a nice idea that I'm pulling out of the story. I am saying, God saved Paul. There was real wind, real ship, real danger, real death, and God saved Paul, he can save you too. The scriptures have all kinds of different types of writing in them, right? There's poetry, there's prophecy, there are letters, there's all kinds of different writing. There's what we call wisdom literature, which is like Proverbs where there's sayings. Each one of those you kind of have to take as the type of thing that's written, right? Poetry is poetry. And sometimes there's poetic language. And guess what? There are stories in the Bible. There's lots of stories. Jesus tells lots of stories. And, when the Bi- and you'll hear people say all the time, well, the Bible isn't meant to be taken literally. Well, sometimes. Sometimes it's not. When there's a poem, it's meant to be a poem. (laughs) When Jesus is telling you a parable, it's meant to be a parable, right? But when Luke says, the wind is blowing, and and we lowered the mast, and we dropped the anchor, and it's coming from the southwest, this is all history. We know God will save us because he saved Paul. And the best thing that I can do for you as one of your pastors is to encourage you to be reading God's word. Take heart from the history. Don't just take it as a metaphor. Don't just take it as a nice story to remind us of good truths. That's what the world will tell you the Bible is good for, and it is not good for that. It is meant to be dealt with. You can argue with Luke. You can say, well, I don't really believe you were on that ship. Good luck. There's enough detail that it should convince anybody that this man was on a ship with Paul that he saw these things. Why lie about it? Jeez. Second point. This is the big thing. 
doing what God wants will always result in suffering. Jesus said it. He said it real clearly the night before he was going to be crucified, right? He said, in this world you will have what? Anybody know? Trouble. Jesus promised you trouble. God, why are you doing this to me? Well, I promised you that I would. I told you straight up. In as clear and unambiguous language as I possibly could, I said, in this world you will have trouble. What are you surprised about? But then what does he say? But take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Doing what God wants will result in your suffering. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Obeying God does not mean the storm is not going to come. He's told you the storm is coming, but it does mean he will bring you safe to the other shore. It does mean you will escape with your life. That he will preserve your life for all eternity. That you will meet him on the shore. That you will greet brothers when you arrive. And all your needs will be supplied. That it does mean. This story is not a metaphor, right? It's not meant to be like a figurative metaphor as I just laid out. But it is meant to point us to the bigger truth. And that is that God will save us from the storm, from the waves. And the storm and the waves are coming They're coming. You can't avoid them. This is the thing I think about with my own kids all the time, who I love and who I want to have a good life, and I want things to go smoothly for them. But I also want them to know, guys, storms are coming. Life's hard. Life is hard. And the fact that it's hard for you and the fact that you've been through difficult things is not a judgment on you. It is not because you failed. It's not because of all the stupid things you've done in your life because Lord knows there's enough. But everybody's got stupid things. Storms are coming because you follow Jesus. Follow him anyway. Because God saved Paul, he can save you too. That's the best encouragement I can give to you this morning. So this morning as we come to communion and we celebrate a man of troubles who is greatly greatly associated with suffering... And we celebrate his body and his blood given for us. We celebrate the fact that we know we will find shore at the other side of the storm. And this, and this morning, if, you, if you're going through it, if you're in it, and I know some of you are in it. If you're in the middle of that storm and you're hundreds of miles off course and it's pitch black and you don't know where the other side is. I'm going to say break some bread this morning. Eat something. Take heart. Take courage. It will do you good. He's going to bring you through. So if you will, I'm going to pray for us and then we will take the bread and the cup together. Lord Jesus, you are our life raft. Lord, we are lost and drowning without you. Thank you, Lord, for saving us, for being our double cure from our own sin, from the snake bites of life, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your body and your blood. May it give us strength and courage to make it through and see the dawn. We love you, Lord. Amen.